I'm Iona Townsley, and this is SEO in 2023, Additional Insights. Iona, what's your additional insight for SEO in 2023? So my additional insight is that digital PR campaigns need to work a lot harder than they have done in the past to achieve the same kind of coverage. Okay, um, so you've said that you're seeing less impact from digital PR campaigns and um, that has led a few people to be a bit more reactive. But you also say, you, we, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, um, that you need to focus on many different areas, watertight data, strong methodologies, great copy, validating them before launch as well. So let's let's dive into those areas. So, so what does watertight data actually mean in practice? So data is a really big way of finding um, a PR hook in digital PR and telling a story. We see a lot of kind of data related essays or studies or indexes um, that tend to work really, really well. But we found that more recently, the data that is being pushed out might not be as watertight as it needs to be. So I feel like digital PR has been inspired from those big studies like the World Happiness Ranking where they've got tons of experts and they've got this really watertight, uh, strong data that we're working with to create an annual report. And those kind of projects get lots of pickup in the press. And I feel like that's where kind of digital PR has been inspired by creating these digital, these data stories from the beginning. But the issue is that because in digital PR, in agencies, you don't have enough time necessarily to put together the kind of stories like the World Happiness Report. We don't have that much access to experts. It leads us to trying to do quick, fast data. And a lot of the time, we're seeing that journalists are actually being able to see through the data that isn't as strong as it should be. So when I say watertight data, I mean data that's coming from really reputable sources. And this is something that you kind of need to just have a competency in yourself of finding out what data is actually giving you the right kind of information. You need to take an extra step rather than just taking that data because it's the stuff that you need for your project and working out if it's the right kind of data that you want to be pushing, if it's reliable data, if it's coming from a source that you can trust. I think with watertight data as well, you need to make sure that the methodology is super, super strong. I'm seeing a lot of the time now that people are posting digital PR campaigns and sometimes they're not listing the methodology when they've got entire stats and data that they're telling a story and that they're pushing to journalists, but they're not actually saying where their sources are from or how they've actually calculated an index. So that loses a lot of trust when you're pitching to a journalist, because if they can't understand why you've done it a certain way, then how are they supposed to tell their readers that this is reliable data? I think watertight data is one of the things that there's a lot of talk about it in digital PR, especially over the past two years. It's something that we need to keep, I guess, keeping to a standard and not thinking that because we don't have enough time that we can't do it because maybe some of us aren't as competent with data because data is its own kind of skill in itself. You can't expect everyone to be really good at data. It's just so hard to keep on top of. And I think as digital PRs, we need to be really kind of on top of that but also if you're in a position where you're not the one dictating how projects are managed or how the PR strategy is managed you need to push back a bit more. I think that's one of the things where we need digital PR campaigns to work harder. So one of the things that you highlighted that you touched upon there was reputable data. So what's an example of reputable, a reputable data source? And also, how do you decide upon the kind of data that you want to collect? 
So a reputable data source would probably be stuff like the US census data. So this is where the US government, they go out and then they find um, lots of information about people where people have to respond to the census. So you've got millions and millions of people giving information to the government that they then present in the census that then you can go ahead and use. That's reputable data because it's coming from a trusted source. You know it's the government and you've got tons of sample data. So there's millions instead of, for example, there's lots of data sources out there that I won't name because I feel like I shouldn't, where they basically people will reply to something or say, this is how much I think X is. But then you find out that only 50 people have responded. And if you're saying that in Slovakia, 50 people have said that the price of a pint of Guinness there is two pounds. 50 people out of the entirety of Slovakia is not a lot at all. Like that's not reputable data. And so what quantity do you have to cross before you get the likelihood that you actually might be considered as using reputable data? So I've been doing a lot of research on this because I've got an issue with survey campaigns as well, which I know lot, like survey campaigns work really well. There's kind of an amount, it depends, I guess, to an extent what you're personally comfortable with. Everyone's amount of data, I don't know how to explain it, but some people are happy with survey data and you have to think about what a journalist is going to be happy with for what that campaign is going to achieve. And if you leave it at that, then you're going to be a successful PR because you're getting coverage from journalists because, say, 2,000 people is enough to have as a survey. But journalists sometimes also aren't that good at being reputable with their own data. They don't check enough when maybe they should do. So you could have your own personal bracket of how much you how many people you need for that data to be reputable. And I think it's an important thing to note because we're always doing stuff that are going to get picked up from journalists. That's what we're trying to do. But I feel like that's, again, why people are starting to not kind of pay attention to the data or having enough reputable data because journalists are starting to pass through that kind of lower level of content where they're not necessarily checking or they don't mind that only two people have said this one thing. You'll see it with like the Daily Mail as well where... They'll say, Twitter is in uproar because Meghan Markle has done this. But then when you actually try and find like the information, there's only like one or two tweets of somebody saying that. They're not being reputable with their own data, so it's hard for people to be kind of keeping up those data standards themselves. But it's completely different based on the kind of project that you're going to push, whether it's a survey, whether it's like gathering data online. But as a standard rule, getting as many people as possible is the best way to go about it and doing it to your own personal ethics, but also to the ethics of the journalist. And you also mentioned that um, it's good practice to incorporate your methodology for collecting your data within your release. Um, So what's an example of a good methodology and how should you actually include that as part of your release? So I think it's important to note that the methodology shouldn't just be in the release. It should be in the kind of content that you've got on the website. So if you're presenting a study on the website, your methodology Anywhere that you're talking about that study or whether it's a dedicated web page, whether it's a press release, you need to have your methodology super, super clear or a link to the methodology so people can start to look at it in kind of like with a fine tooth comb. So I've always said that if your methodology isn't clear enough for someone else to copy, then it's not clear enough at all. But I don't know why people aren't putting in proper methodologies. I don't know if it's just because they're time strapped. Um, I don't know if it's because they're scared about other agencies copying their methodologies, um, which I know some people 
are worried about. That's why a lot of people don't actually share their work because they're scared of other people copying them. But a methodology is there to give people more of an insight of where you found your data or why you're telling the story that you're telling. And at the end of the day, you need to pass that methodology onto the journalist. So everyone's going to have that methodology somewhere, but we're finding that they're not presenting it as much on the website. But in general, a methodology should clearly state what you've done, how you've done it, link to the sources and I guess the date that you've actually captured the data as well. You should put as much information on there as possible. Maybe not saying step by step how you pulled search volumes from Ahrefs, for example, but making it clear what Ahrefs is, uh, linking to it, that kind of thing. I shouldn't have said Ahrefs because this is a Majestic podcast. It's 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 entirely <laughs> fine. Majestic are happy talking about other tools. There's okay, no good. one really who's a, a direct competitor. Um, there are lots of different tools out there that do different things, so it's completely fine. Okay, brilliant. Thank God. <laughs> Look, uh, let's move on to great copy. You also mentioned the fact that um, great copy is something that um, needs to be utilised in 2023. So what constitutes great copy? Um, I think, again, it can be different to different people, but in terms of if you're presenting um, a data study, a good way to look at it is to make sure that everything that you're writing is clear and informative. So at the top, you might have things like key findings to pull out the top kind of stories that you're going to end up pushing to journalists. Um, This could be particular large countries or large cities that you want to focus on, any surprising stats, that kind of thing. But then also on the landing page, the way that you set it out is very important. So you want to make sure that you've got headers, that you're pulling out the most interesting stats, that everything is really clear. I think with copy, it's very easy to kind of start fluffing things up, which is not what, to be honest, anyone wants. It's just such an easy mistake to fall into. If you're a journalist or just the average reader falling onto that page, you want to get the information as quickly as possible. You don't want to start reading these different like tangents about the data. I think with the copy as well, it's good to add additional references. So whilst you've got your data study and you've got the kind of like key stories that you want to go out with, it's good to kind of add in additional sources. They might be stats to support your story and to show that while you've created this data story, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's other things backing it up or there's other things that make it, I guess, more relevant and to why it should be pushed out today. So what's some general great advice that you could offer on writing a great headline and writing a great introductory paragraph? So I think writing a great headline um, is an interesting one. A lot of the time the headline kind of is the headline in terms of the landing page copy is going to be very similar to the subject line that you're going to push out to a journalist when you're outreaching. So with ideas, for example, you want to make sure that your idea fits into one or two lines when you're like pitching to somebody to make sure that it's clear and concise. And then that's going to probably be the one line that is going to get pushed out um, into the landing page and into press. So making sure it's super clear, making sure it's super concise. In terms of it being the header of the landing page copy, I'd just say like a really simple kind of overarching view of what the project is. So these are the cities ranked on blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't dig into, say, London is the best city for X because then you're starting to give away your data. You want to give people just showing them what it is, not start telling them the data before they even want to know if they want to read on. And then for subject lines, I guess because you're saying headline, it's making me think of subject lines and landing page headers. For the subject line, I guess you just need it to be like super 
concise again, make sure it's something that the journalist is going to be interested in. If it's regional outreach, picking out key cities or counties or whatever it might be that you're outreaching to. But the main thing is just to keep it super clear of what you've looked at and super concise. So using your specific example, instead of saying London is the best city for X, you would say best city for X revealed or something like that. So if it was a subject line, London is the best city for X is definitely something that you could use, especially if you're outreaching to London specific press. If we're talking about the landing page copy and the header, I'd just put something simple like the best and worst places in the UK for, I don't know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but you get it. For X. (laughs) For X. (laughs) And moving on to validating them before launch, what does that mean? So validating your idea is making sure that what you end up going forward with, whatever you end up pushing out, is ideally going to work. So if you have an idea that you start working on and you've got all these questions in your head and you're not sure if it's going to work, you've got a bad feeling about it, whatever it might be, you should not go ahead with that idea or that project until you know for a fact it's going to work. It's fine if you push out a project that you think is really going to work and it doesn't. It happens. You can't, sometimes you can't really help it. It depends what's going on in the news. But if you go out with a project that you don't think is going to work, it's probably not going to work. So that's where validation comes in. You start asking yourself questions and making sure that what you push out is to the highest standard that you possibly can and that you know journalists are going to be interested in it. Okay, so you're just asking yourself questions and perhaps your team questions. You're not necessarily doing a soft, soft launch just to a few journalists and um, getting their feedback. Exactly. So it's kind of more so at the ideation stage. You'd ask yourself um, a list of questions just to make sure that it's going to pass the mark, but you can validate in different ways. So I know in the past we've used Reddit before, especially for really big data stories where we've got lots of moving parts. Uh, Maybe there's lots of cities or countries involved in it. Reddit's a really good way of getting that initial feedback. They'll pick up easily on anything that they don't think is correct. If you've said people in China sit down to pee instead of squat or whatever, people will be like, no, you're completely wrong. And then that's like another way that you can be like, oh, actually, there's some key issues here. Have we just mixed up the data in the Excel sheet? Is the data genuinely wrong? Those kind of things. And Reddit's really good because people don't actually give a shit about your project. Like, it's not like you're in the team or that you personally come up with the idea. They do not care whatsoever what is, like, who you are or what you've done. They're just looking at the data and they'll pick it apart, which is kind of beautiful in a way. So you've shared what SEO should be doing in 2023. Now let's talk about what SEO shouldn't be doing. So what's something that's seductive in terms of time, but ultimately counterproductive? What's something that SEOs shouldn't be doing in 2023? I think looking at campaigns and formats that have worked in the past and assuming that they're going to work exactly the same in the future. I think we had a bit of a golden age, which is probably around the time that I started in digital PR. I felt like it was super easy when I started, which is, I guess, kind of bad to say, but the same formats would get you really high results. So people were doing the same things all the time. I've noticed in during coronavirus, there was a huge shift in how journalists were kind of like dealing with pitches and the kind of content because everyone didn't know what readers wanted, found out that positive content was going to do better than, say, negative. Shock. But that's kind of how things went. And then the past two years, we've still been trying to work out what 
journalists need, what they're kind of like looking for, which has made people struggle. Like I think a lot of hero content isn't performing as well as it has done in the past. And I think it's because we're assuming that the same formats, the same things that we've been doing are going to work again in the future. And they do, in a sense, for example, with map campaigns, the format works really well. But that's because it gives you so much outreach opportunities. You can go to lots of different countries. You've usually got multiple angles. But say the experiment where you find out how dirty something is compared to a toilet seat. I've seen a lot of those go out more recently and... One or two have worked really, really well. They've hit the nail on the head, but a lot of them haven't. And I think we just need to be really mindful about what formats, what types of campaigns are going to do well. But I think that also means that we need to open up ourselves to experimentation a lot more, which is hard to say when you work in an agency and you have a client and they've got like a minimum amount of links that you've promised that you're going to give them or something like that. It's hard to say, we're going to try this new thing. It might completely flop, but trying new things is going to keep you ahead of the industry or failing that finding something a format that's been proven in a different industry whether that's a data analyst at the new york times has tried something and no one in digital pr has yet or you know something along that lines where you can experiment but be comfortable knowing that you've got something to prove that it might probably work Ione Townsley is a creative at Neomam Studios, and you can find her over at neomam.com. Iona, thanks so much for adding your additional insight to SEO in 2023. Thank you so much. I've been your host, David Bain, and you've been listening to SEO in 2023 Additional Insights, a majestic series that complements the original SEO in 2023 podcast, video series, and book. Find out more over at SEO in 2023. Dot com.